Welcome to this month's Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. This month, we're exploring two books with a feminist theme. The new graphic novel from Mary and Brian Talbot with Kate Charlesworth called Sally Heathcote's Suffragette and The Vagenda by Holly Baxter and Rhiannon Lucy Coslett. Started as a blog by two recent graduates in 2012, The Vagenda soon picked up a large fan base of women who enjoyed its witty and bolshy critique of how women are represented in the media. Now it's an engaging and provocative book and I'm pleased to be joined by its authors, Holly and Rhiannon. Thanks so much for coming in and congratulations on the book. Um, I wonder if we could start, though, with you just telling me a bit about how you met and how you came to set up the website, The Vagenda, what it was for, how it came about, how it took off um, and how it's become this book. Well, we were we were sharing a flat together in Kentish Town. We'd um, met through university friends and it was not the most... Uh, salubrious of places to live I'll put it that way (laughs) it had kind of peeling wallpaper and orange carpets it was um a little attic above a pub and um we were both pretty skint weren't we and we used to just kind (laughs) of hang out in our flat drinking wine and reading magazines and I think probably because we were so skint and Holly had just graduated into the recession and I was still at university kind of panicking about what would happen next um it really felt as though the kind of lifestyle that was being portrayed in these magazines really didn't gel with what our lives were like. And that's when we sort of started taking the mick out of them and having a laugh. And the idea came from that, really. Yeah, I mean, we were we were reading these magazines and we were finding these very repetitive messages over and over again. And we couldn't really afford to go out in London. So a lot so these of our are, social lives These are specifically sort of women's magazines, glossy magazines. Yeah. Um, selling you, you know... High fashion items, low fashion items, beauty treatments, that kind of thing. Aspirational kind of uh, women's magazines. But it wasn't just um, that we couldn't afford the clothes and things like that, but also that we kept seeing the same messages again and again about sex, about beauty, things like that. And it just, they seemed so ridiculous to us when we were living in our little, like, sort of dystopian um, flat (laughs) in Kentish Town and um, living our sort of um, recession-esque lives. And um, the only thing we could do, really, was laugh about it. And we ended up laughing loads about it. Um, We started thinking, well, if we're laughing at it, we can't be the only people who are. And um, eventually we put the blog into fruition when um, we were both in our first jobs after university. And uh, I was living in Rhiannon's airing cupboard. And um, that's when we decided we were actually going to write some articles, put them out there. We didn't expect people to really read the blog, apart from possibly our mums, as Rhiannon <laughs> always says. And, um, yeah, it became an overnight success. So I think, you know, it's testament to how many women were thinking that. I'm loving this kind of image of you as the kind of young female with nail and eye. <laughs> it was so much like that. Though. It really was. I mean, People actually used to walk through the door of the flat and say it was like something out of with nail and eye because it really did look that way. We shared a bathroom with the pub landlord. Yeah, we didn't downstairs. even have our own bathroom. We didn't bathroom. even have Not our own bathroom. the actual pub landlord. Yeah, the yes. actual pub landlord. Okay. It Good was, way to and, get free drinks. Yeah, well... <laughs> 
<laughs> well, every now and then. Um, also, you know, had um, the unintended effect of losing our knickers that would mysteriously go missing if we ever hung them out to dry sometimes right. in the bathroom. Okay. That Not we that we're accusing anyone, we're just <laughs> stating a fact. It was a very public bathroom is all I'm saying. <laughs> so at the time, before you got the idea for the blog, what, it, what were you hoping to do? What had been your idea? Had you been thinking of careers in writing or in the media or, or what sort of things were you thinking of? Well, funnily enough, when we both graduated and you kind of walk up onto the stage and the dean says, well, what are you going to do with yourself, young lady? We both said separately that we'd quite like to write a book. Um... But never thought it was something that would happen. And then when the book took off, it was when the blog took off, sorry, it was just amazing. And, you know, several literary agents got in touch and we couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. We both, we wanted to work in the media. We knew that. Um, but we were working in, you know, fairly low sort of status jobs in the media. Um, you know, Rhiannon was doing internships and stuff and then she was working for an online magazine. I was working in PR and, um, you know, we were low paid. We didn't really know what we were going to do. We never saw ourselves becoming successful authors or, you know, big journalists or anything like that. And um, the fact that we were able to make our own magazine and have our, you know, our voices heard across the internet is amazing because we would never have been able to, you know, afford to do that before blogs and things came into being. So you set the blog up and obviously that's uh, one of the fantastic advantages of the developments in modern media. Anybody can set a blog up. But it's also one of the disadvantages. Anybody can set a blog up. So there are hundreds and thousands and everybody, obviously we all have something that we want to say. So what was it, do you think, that made the Vagenda really stand out? Because it did from its very early days, didn't it? I think it was it was sort of a mystery to us as well because we went on social media, we hadn't done very much to promote it. I think it's just that other women had been thinking what we were thinking and nobody had actually said it before and I do think we filled a little niche there which was kind of you know I think you know the way was paved by people like Catelyn Moran who sort of showed a whole generation of women that you can be a feminist and you can be funny with it it doesn't have to be kind of angry diatribe all the time and I mean we hadn't read how to be a woman when we first started the blog but after reading it we were just like oh maybe maybe this is something that we could do as well Mm. and I think that really Really kind of had an impact on us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we had a few different posts on the Vagenda blog when we first set it up. And I think um, within that sort of niche of making fun of how women are presented in the media, we had different things. We had a very shareable um, piece that Rhiannon did, um, which was just, uh, what was it called? Um, it was... Uh, stock photo images of women looking remorseful after sexual encounters. <laughs> so amazing. it was a very simple, sim- you know, very simple kind of... Um, um, a, a very simple post amalgamating these photos that they use in magazines to illustrate stories and it was always kind of, you know, a man asleep in a crumpled bed and a woman sat, sat next to him with her head in her hands. And, you know, once you spot a visual trope like that, I think people really kind of cottoned onto it and it was being shared all over the place. Yeah, I mean, we so, had that alongside sort of, um, I did something called Cliff, Cliff's Notes for Cosmo and that was like um, a sort of, very short breakdown of everything that was um, in the pages of Cosmo that week. And then we had a couple of other things that were fairly shareable and quick, but um, sort of in different forms. And I think that just made, you know, it it made it appeal to a wide audience, I suppose. 
one thing that you you keep sort of coming back to, and it, and it's obviously true, a lot of your posts and the way that you present um, the blog, it's very funny. It's kind of appealing to people's sort of sense of humour. But there's a lot of anger there too, isn't there? Because, you know, the, the, the subtitle of the book is A Zero Tolerance Guide to the Media. So this isn't just about sort of send-ups, is it? No, no. I mean, it's, I, I think... You know, it did. It was born out of a sense of of sadness and frustration at the media we were being presented with, and I think humour was an amazing outlet for that. It was, you know, very cathartic for us and very enjoyable, and it meant that we could keep the momentum as well without it kind of, you know, I feel like if we it started an angry blog, I think we would have run out of steam very, very quickly. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> Writing it, trying to write in a kind of accessible, entertaining way was, we felt, a really good way of conveying our dissatisfaction. But yeah, of course we're angry about it. And I think I think it comes across in the book that, you know, this is something that we regard as a real problem. It does. And a real threat to the next generation of young women as well. What would you say to, to people who said, OK, I read Grazia, Cosmo, Red, Marie Claire, you know, you're not, there's no one you're singling out. You're talking about the magazine industry in general. Um, and just say, well, this is something I relax with. This is something that I find fun. I like looking at nice clothes and reading about silly beauty treatments and people's kind of uh, slightly misery memoir kind of first person things. I just like it. I don't take it seriously. It's doing me no harm. What would be your response to, to that kind of attitude? I think um, this is sort of a criticism we come up against a lot. We've sort of, we've spoken in schools and things and we've had people turn up before who have been like, well, I like my Cosmo subscription or my, you know, my weekly Grazia read or whatever. Why are you trying to take it away from me? It's a light read. And the thing is that that's the last thing we're trying to do. We love light reads. The reason we set up the blog was because we were consumers of these magazines we wanted to have them but when we started thinking about them and when we started consuming them very very regularly we realized that there were a lot of negative insecurity pushing messages behind a lot of things that they were doing and what we really want to see are these magazines existing but and we do want to have the light sort of beauty and fashion things we we enjoy all of that we just don't think that it should have to come with insecurity mongering with advertorial that's all to do with plastic surgery packed in next editorial that sort of the messages are bleeding into each other. We just think that they can be improved and women shouldn't have to put up with um, that sort of insidiousness alongside their light reads. And you do mean specifically as well young women, don't you? I mean, you, you've kind of mentioned that. Obviously, you are both young women. Um I think things have changed, speaking as an older woman, because I remember being a student and being at a women's group meeting where our resolution was that we weren't going to shave our legs anymore mm. um, because we didn't want to be complicit with the patriarchy. <laughs> and I don't know if that happens anymore. Do you think it does? Do you think it can happen again? Do you think it needs to happen? I think what's interesting about kind of some of the reaction that's come from the book is that you know, some some women of the older generation have have said, "Hold on, I thought we tackled this. I thought we all knew that women's magazines were bad. It's you know we've moved on from that. It's kind of patronising to say so, but I think what the reason it appeals to kind of like young women particularly is because we didn't have any feminist upbringing." 
the 90s was basically just a big feminist vacuum. So while there was all that progress made about shaving your arm, not shaving your armpits, not shaving your legs, not feeling as though you'll kind of have to be in thrall to these um, pressures that you get from not only the magazine industry, but from commerce generally, we didn't have any of that. So it's almost like it went backwards and we're having to start from square one. And actually for us you know, the realisation, that watershed moment of just going, oh, hold on, maybe this magazine doesn't have my interests at heart. It sounds so simple, but it was quite a big thing for yeah. us, I think, to realise that. I think, and I think it has been for our readers too. At the same time, the media has changed so much. Um, now people are permanently plugged into the media. I mean, the Daily Mail is the biggest website in the world. People are always on their smartphones. They're, they're continuously reading their news. They're continuously reading about celebrities. It's not the same as it was before. And um, so these messages are getting pumped into young people you know, 24 hours a day. And I think that's um, that's really important to also um, consider because it's actually very hard to fight against that when people are reading it all the time, nonstop. And these are very powerful companies. They have a, a lot to lose and they have big advertisers. And it's within their interest to push some very negative images of women and it's very easy to carry on those stereotypes. So I think combined with the sort of feminist vacuum in the 90s, it's actually very serious to have a book like ours that speaks to a lot of young women. I mean, feminism has changed. It's continually um, evolving and changing, but it has in the last couple of years been in a particular sort of ferment. Mm. Um, and occasionally that you, you feel that that um, expresses itself in what appears at least to outsiders as a kind of infighting. Mm. Um, there has been a lot of reaction to your book, not only from um, other feminists, also from male journalists and columnists. How do you see yourself fitting into this landscape? Do you see it as one landscape or as something that is necessarily kind of fragmentary? I think we always we always knew the book was going to be controversial because, you know, it's challenging a mainstream media. And I think if you're a part of that system, you might not necessarily want to kind of interrogate the reasons why you're there and why that system exists. So we're not necessarily surprised that it's had kind of, you know, a mixed reaction. For us personally, we didn't set the site up to be a feminist blog. We weren't very well versed in feminist critical theory. We didn't, we weren't really familiar with the online feminist movement at all. Um... So it was very interesting that when kind of the blog took off, we were being hailed as kind of like young, new young feminists part of the movement. So I think although we are feminists and we would never deny that fact, it's still kind of, I don't know quite where we do fit in. We've had some amazing support from other young women as well. Laura Bates, Everyday Sexism book has come out, you know, in the same month, nearly. Um, you know, she's been absolutely brilliant and she started her campaign at just around the same time as us. So although, yes, there has been trashing and I think trashing has always been a problem in the feminist movement, um, the support has been amazing as well. And uh, and that's what we kind of like to remember, I think. Yeah, I mean, feminism is a movement, you know, that 50% of the population are supposed to be fighting for or whatever. You know, communism or um, fascism or, any, or liberalism or anything you think of just doesn't have that many people involved in it. And um, so I think any political movement is going to have... Um, in fighting and it, the problem is when you start getting the media sort of talking about how women are bitching about each other or having cat fights and things like that um, because it's feminism but um, essentially we've 
we've been overwhelmed by the support that we got from women. There's been um, there's been a little bit of random trashing, such as being called the UKIP of feminism. But apart from that... <laughs> Not because we're racist, but because we're single-issue. We're too single-issue, um, which but, is But, you know, that, that, that's our bugbear. That's the thing we wanted to focus on. That's, you know, and what's brilliant about, like, modern feminism now is that it can be single-issue. You don't have to sign up to a whole checklist of what it means to be a feminist. You know, you can say, I'm going to campaign about page three, or I'm going to campaign about magazines, or I'm going to campaign about, you know, street harassment and that can be your thing and you can do that and the internet's given you the power to kind of reach out to all the other people who feel the same way about it tell me before i let you go to continue uh the good work what the next step is i sleep sleep (laughs) for me it's sleep um we just, I, I suppose we're just going to wait to hear what everybody thinks of the book. I mean, I mean, yeah, we love what we've been doing um, around the blog and things is going and talking to university groups and schools and things. And we found that very, very inspiring. It's something we both really enjoy doing um, because these young women are often and girls are so engaged and they're also so willing to talk about it. A lot of them have turned up in schools and been like, well, I'm definitely against everything you stand for. <laughs> and then we've done... In fact, we once turned up to a school where um, a male teacher was like, I don't know why you're here. Feminism is over. And he was completely serious. And we did this whole speech. And um, he came up to us afterwards and was like, oh, my God, um, I'm going to ask my wife to cancel her Grazia subscription. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the fact that we have gone out there and seen those very real time changes in people's lives has been really great. And I think that's something we're definitely going to do. Yeah, we're hoping to do like student unions and schools in the autumn because, um, you know, we've got this standard talk that's called What is Wrong with Women's Magazines? And we kind of show, you know, it's usually teenage girls. We'll show them kind of the examples and how to spot them and just how to think more critically about the media that they're consuming. Um, And that's probably been the most rewarding aspect of doing the Vigenda, you know, bar none it's just been absolutely amazing hearing their feedback getting their emails and their tweets it's just been great roll on the Vagenda world tour (laughs) (laughs) many thanks for joining us go and get some sleep thank you very much (laughs) thanks so much the collaboration between husband and wife legendary cartoonist and illustrator Brian and academic Mary Talbot proved a great success when they won the Costa Best Memoir Prize in 2013 with Daughter of Her Father's Eyes In their new book, they've joined up with illustrator Kate Charlesworth for Sally Heathcote, Suffragette, the gripping story of the campaign for Votes for Women. We're delighted to welcome all three to the podcast studio. Hello, Mary, Kate and Brian, and thanks so much for for joining us. Um, Now, let's just sort of get things straight to start with. There are three of you um, writing the book together, a words and pictures book. Just tell us how that works in terms of who does what and how it all sort of comes comes together. Well, it began with, began with Mary, really. Yes, I wrote a script. <laughs> uh, well, I did a lot of research, which eventually g- culminated in a script. I, mean, I started it in 2010, as a matter of fact, as soon as I'd finished writing the script for Daughter of Her Father's Eyes. I was searching around for another absorbing project, 
and I wanted I was interested in exploring things about feminist history I didn't know about and it turned out to be suffragettes <laughs> I mean I, I explored it in the library for a long time and realized that I could get a really cracking story out of it and that's how it how it sort of works and that's how it works with daughter of her father's eyes as well you start with with the the story you start oh, yes. with, with yes, the words definitely yeah. Yeah. Um, and in that previous book Brian then you sort of took over with the picture on mm. this occasion it was it was both you and Kate yeah what, I, the, what the biggest difference I thought with the script for daughter and the script for Sally was that um, daughter was Mary's first graphic novel script and um, it was a lot more sort of loosely laid out the script mm. a bit like a, a mm. stage play almost and I came in to break it up into pages and individual panels now and again Mary had mentioned you know certain panels are important but uh, I did that with Sally Mary broke it up into pages you know page one panel one this is happening um, so it was a lot more like a conventional comic script for me and yeah I took over next and I produced all the layouts for the book um, which means you know I did all the sort of panel borders and the lettering and the placement of the balloons and then I did, you know, with, on a Wacom tablet straight on computer, I did rough layouts for Kate to follow, which involved sort of telling the story visually, but in a very basic, very rough way, you know, composing each panel. So there's a close in this panel, there's, you know, uh, the, uh, there's this sort of body language, here's the placement of the people on this, in this crowd scene, you know, things like that. So I sort of did the, the loose visual storytelling. Um, I also did a, the book design, and um, I did the end papers, and I actually did the artwork for page 165, didn't I, which is the collage page. But then I did it on 10-page batches, which then went off to Kate. Yep. So, Kate, then you come into the story. Then I came into the story. <laughs> well, actually, I came into the story, I think, in 2011, when I met Brian, and he said, oh, Mary's writing a script for another graphic novel. Would you be interested? And I think you mentioned it was about the suffragettes, and I said, well, yes, actually, yes, fantastic Because you've been idea. into the suffragettes for quite a while. Well, yeah. you know, just women's history. Yeah. Although I didn't realise how little I knew about the suffragettes until I read the script and started working on it. Um, you know, I had a very scant knowledge, as it turned out, just the usual you know, Pankhurst and uh, uh, Emily Davidson. Um, but the, uh, the pages came through from... We did all this by email, and um, the pages came through to me in Photoshop layers, the lettering, the grid, and the, as Brian's described, the layout. So I actually, I actually printed the whole lot out, and I've got this ancient machine at home called a Grant Projector, which is like a huge bellows uh, camera thing, and I slipped it and slipped the artwork, the printout, onto the tray underneath, adjust the bellows, and the image appears on a glass screen. So I did a very quick trace of that at the size at which I work, which is about half up, about twice half up as big as the book and then made my drawing from that traced that through on a light box onto the actual paper I was going to use and then went to pen uh, brush and ink and um, and watercolour and it was just getting into a routine Yes, um, and uh, after you'd done the first uh, pencils, you'd send them to I us. I did, yeah. And then, Just you know, the case. thing is, we're, the, the three yeah. of us are all perfectionists, and we're also nitpicking, <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> yep. so, so, of course, then you, you um, would, would come in again, Mary, and say, well, I don't think that's quite yeah, right, yeah, I don't yeah, like, and actually yeah, I want yeah. to tweak the story a bit yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, no, the story didn't change, it no, changed no, very no. little. It was just a matter mm. of whether the, the characters in a particular panel were actually expressing clearly enough what they were supposed mm. to be. Yeah. 
And in my case, I'm sort of saying, oh, you know, this lamppost. Last time we saw this, <laughs> this street, great you know, lamppost. 20 pages ago, it was it was over there. It was at this oh, side of the door, you know. Yes. As well. um, but that's the joy of Photoshop. Yeah, this lamppost right. moved around all over. The place. <laughs> yes, but the thing is, I when I'm doing the rough layouts, I didn't have to concentrate on things like ephemera or, or sort of period costume detail. I just did a generic sort of Edwardian sort of costume, and Kate did all the research, the the, the um, you know proper. So you sort of set the kind of the, the sort of structure, as it were. You kind of made the sort of framework, and then yeah. Kate, you came in and sort of fleshed brought that out. to life and fleshed yeah. it out. Yeah. I mean. <clears throat> I mean, Mary and Brian provided me with an awful lot of visual material. I mean, some of it was very specific, with some very architectural pages in it, for instance. That when the first one came through, I thought, God. <laughs> but actually, I quite liked doing that. So in about every four or half a dozen pages, there's some great building or there's Parliament or Buckingham Palace, you know, sure. in great detail, which I rather liked. So things like that were worked directly from photographs. Um, and, and there were certain... Uh, Photographs of suffrage meetings, for instance, that we we use because it's because it's it's very accurate, mm. and and using f- photographic period reference like that just I think enhances the authenticity of it, and yeah, you know, I mean period details like <clears throat> wardrobe, I tried to use for 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 the named characters like Mrs. Pankhurst, Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, I tried to use known outfits that. They actually really did wear in, in in reference that I found to give that sense of real sort mm. of authenticity. Mm. I was very interested and, and actually relieved to hear you say that a lot of it you didn't know because I found myself thinking exactly the same thing as I read the book. I would have thought I knew the kind of basics of of the history of the suffrage movement, but so many of these these people were unknown to me and their stories and their characters were unknown to me. Um, Mary, that must have been very much in your mind when you were writing the script. That you were struck, really revealing yeah. a lot of a lot of things that people didn't know. Well, my own response was the same as yours. You know, gosh, when I started reading around the subject in detail, I hadn't realised. I thought how little I knew about this. You know, I didn't realise I was I, it was so minimal the the knowledge that I had. I, what I didn't understand was the sheer scope, vastness, size of the movement. Mm. You know that it, that it spanned across social classes, and that it, and it was it lasted lasted for so long, you know, it, it went on for years and years. I, I had no idea it was such an enormous thing that seemed to get the entire generation. Really. And you really bring to life the, the personalities that are involved, the conflicts <laughs> that they have, their different dispositions and characters. Um, but of course, you do it through this this unknown person, really. Fictional character, in fact. Sally, yes. yes. Tell us about well, that, her that freed and me you... up. Yeah, It freed me up from the um, historical material, in a way, in that it, I had a character who wasn't fixed to one of the biographies. She wasn't fixed to one particular character who was historically real. So she could move around and she could she could experience things which I wouldn't have been able to write in if I'd have strictly stayed with a with a you know, authentic bio- biographical approach. And it, she also comes in from the side, as it were. She comes in by yes. accident. She's, she's, she's in yeah. service. Yeah. She wears, what is it called? The muslin, the muslin badge, badge of servitude. Of servitude. servitude. Yeah. Um, but she, that was Hannah Mitchell, who was a, who was a real um, a Derbyshire um, suffrage activist. 
who's a, who's a character in it, but I mean that was her expression. She comes out with it in her uh, autobiographical book. Well, I, th- I think that was one of the things that makes it really relevant for today, because you can see how Sally starts off on the fringes, and as the story goes along, becomes increasingly radicalised. Mm by, you know, the treatment they get from the police, you know, the way that uh, the government don't take any notice of them and the more extreme measures, you know, they have to take more and more extreme measures as it goes along, so it makes it very resonant today, I think. One of the things that that really came across vividly, um, just as you're saying, really, is that that sense of the measures that people had to take. And I guess this is in part um, one of the reasons why it lends itself so well to a visual treatment. Mm. I hadn't really thought about how violent the the movement was. Obviously, we know about acts such as as Emily Mm. Davison falling beneath, throwing herself beneath the king's horse. We know about the forced feeding. But you really bring it to life a lot. There's a lot of fighting in this book, mm. isn't there? Yeah. Yes, it was, it's the first time I've written fight scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I've not drawn them that often. <laughs> well, it comes across pretty well because she is very uh, she is very physical, well, Sally, She's a, she's a working she? class girl. Uh, she's a workhouse girl. Like she's a workhouse girl. girl. Yeah, yeah, I mean, right, she's rough. Yes. She's to defend herself. She knows herself. how to look after mm, herself, yeah. yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, what do you hope that the that the book will will provoke in, in its readers now, perhaps readers who don't know the details of the history of the suffrage movement? Well, I'm particularly keen that the whole... It all gets revisited. I think it's high time that the, the suffrage movement history was, was um, given an airing again. And I think it's high time that the Pethick Lawrences and other such figures who tended to be backgrounded, that their side of the story was told. These I are mean, the people pe- who really... Um, underpinned the movement, they didn't the they? They, they, they the funded it. And, organizational and, and we don't know their names. Their names are not no, familiar to right. us, are they? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to um, make people look slightly differently at Emmeline Pankhurst. I mean, most people will only have heard of her, and she was very important, but she's been put on a pedestal, and I'd, I'd like to sort of rattle her on a pedestal a little bit. <laughs> yes, the book is quite subversive about her, isn't it? I mean, she certainly doesn't come out of it as a sort of... Uh, She's not an easy person, and that obviously must come across in the way that you draw someone like that. Now, yes. obviously, you are tied a little bit to, to, you know, to photographs and to the kind of historical record. But how, um, Kate, do you sort of bring a character like that to life? Well, um, I, re- I rooted around on the internet as, as, as many photographs of Mrs. Pankhurst as I could, just for facial accuracy. You know, there's quite quite a few of us speaking, so she's actually got her mouth open and very occasionally and in profile, which is helpful. And so using the known facial characteristics and then with a the mirror in front, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to act these things. Mm-hmm. You sit there pulling faces and posing <laughs> in front of mirrors and taking photographs of yourself and then u- using all those things to um, to coalesce onto the onto the page and hope that you you, you um, put them together there that is a representation of, of how it might have looked because it's a very accurate it's an accurate book on mm. on so many levels the story is very accurate apart from the bits you've made up obviously <laughs> the um, you know the costumes the the, the well, badges yeah, the, fact, everything the, the 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 back cover there's a quote on the back cover from mm-hmm. the expert on the suffrage movement elizabeth crawford and she says it was the best thing anybody could say about it was not only is to is to a rollicking read a fantastic read it's also extremely accurate it is a very very gripping book um but I also just wanted to ask you all really about this medium that you've chosen to tell the story in. Um, 
Obviously, graphic novels have had an immense rise in popularity and in sort of mainstream popularity. Um, so, do you think this is a way actually to really kind of reach out to people and to get them to to take this story on so many different levels? Well, yeah, and that's the thing about graphic novels because it uses they use a mixture of words and pictures. You can get quite complex ideas across very simply and very droutly mm. by the use of an image. You know, pictures worth a thousand words, as mm. they say, but you can just transmit information very simply using them. It's a bit like having a, a, a film in a book and except that you can go back and flip through and uh, and as as someone who's working if you're the, you know if you if you're the right if you if you write and draw the whole thing yourself which I I've done this sort of thing of course you, Brian has too you have far more control than any film director mm-hmm. because because you, you you don't have actors to worry about you know you put all the sound effects in you are the ultimate director drawing a graphic novel um one of the other things that the the book does is take us right into that period and obviously there is an immense uh, interest in it at the moment uh, because we're, we, are, we approach yeah. the kind of mm. the, the commemoration of the First World War. A set of commemorations going to go on for four years. Um, 1916, also the commemoration of the Easter Rising. Um, mm. That that kind of idea of that period of time really forming how we were as a nation and so many important things in the world must have really kind of gripped you all as you were writing and, and drawing. Yes, it, for me it was, it was very much... Um formation of the modern world I, I felt as though I was looking at it sort of before our eyes you know looking at I mean looking at um, the way the um, means of transport were changing from the beginning of the story I mean it's mostly horse-drawn carriages to the end of it when it's all motor-driven you know trucks and buses there's more traffic going, on the road and everything. a lot yeah. more traffic and so on yeah so I felt as though I was bringing it into modernity and yes and then it ending culminating with wartime um when everything changed, of course, so profoundly. Uh, and actually, even, even Sally is wearing shorter skirts. She is, At the yes. end, yeah. <laughs> the girls has all got legs now. Yes. yes. The character says, yeah. <laughs> Very many thanks to you all for, for joining us today. And Sally Heathcote is out now. Thanks for joining us for the May podcast. We'd love to hear what you think of the Vintage Podcast, so if you have a couple of minutes, please do write us a review on iTunes or a comment on SoundCloud. Join us again next month for more interviews and discussions with your favourite authors. And don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk. See you next month.